You're listening to the Boss Business of Surgery series, episode 94. Today, I talk with Dr. Jess McMichael. She's an orthopedic surgeon who realized she no longer felt delight in her career. She takes us all through how she created the career that does create delight. And if you missed Thriving Despite Having Complications, that free webinar replay is available at bosssurgery.com. Welcome, surgeons. Residency didn't teach us everything we needed to learn to be a successful surgeon. While we spent our time caring for patients and learning how to operate, we didn't learn how to advocate for ourselves or navigate our career. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Vertries. I'm a general surgeon, certified coach, and founder of the Boss Business of Surgery series. This is where you'll learn those lessons not taught in residency. Welcome back. I have a very good friend of mine. This is Dr. Jess McMichael. She is a pediatric orthopedic surgeon, and I've been watching her with this very calculated career path she has carved for herself, and I cannot wait for her to tell us all the details because you cannot make a change if you don't know it's possible. So she is going to share with us that it is actually indeed possible to have the life that you want. So Dr. McMichael, please tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you, Amy. Dr. Vertries, thank you so much for having (laughs) me on. (laughs) I'm delighted to be here and super grateful to be talking to you. It's been a long time. Mm -hmm. So thank you. I'm an orthopedic surgeon, as you mentioned, and I have a funny history with orthopedics. I'll just briefly go over it for everybody. I did a six-year residency program, had a one-year mandatory research year. And I was one of those weird ones that knew it was really hard, but I kind of had a charmed existence. I was hard worker, didn't really run into a whole lot of issues that a lot of women surgeons face in surgical training. I had garden variety, sexual harassment and stuff like that, but nothing, nothing that was impacting my ability to succeed in residency. And then I was in the military. So I went away to Korea for a year and practiced there and then was able to get my assignment of choice, which was back at my original hospital where I trained in St. Louis. And I was there for three years working on the trauma service, got out of the military and then did a pediatric fellowship. And then after fellowship, so right at the beginning of fellowship is actually when things really started to fall apart for me because I was newly married. I was a new mom. I was transitioning from the military to civilian life, and my husband was retiring from the military and transitioning from military to civilian life. So it was just a lot of things happening all at once that were very disruptive to the normal flow of life. And Bruce Baylor in the transition calls that the life quake. (laughs) Yeah, it was a life quake. It was a life quake for sure. And if I'm being perfectly honest, when your spouse is having a life quake at the same time, mm-hmm. it's intense. It's mm-hmm. intense. So that was the beginning of my kind of decline. I was like living the dream, so to speak, and just plummeted into mostly anxiety. It was like a postpartum situation where I was really anxious all the time. I was no stranger to anxiety, but it was just not a problem. I could manage it really, really well. And this became crushing, crushing anxiety. And so I was in my first job out. Well, let's, so fellowship, I just white knuckled through fellowship. Husband was home with the kid and I was going to fellowship and I was miserable and just really hanging on for dear life. It's just like sheer force of will that I got through that. 
and then went, and I just kept thinking everything will be okay when I get here. It's kind of that arrival fallacy. Mm-hmm. So first job out of fellowship, I was doing 50, 50 adult and pediatric orthopedic surgery. So I was on a trauma team, still teaching residents, loving that, but not really fitting in, in the department. That was the first time I didn't fit in somewhere, which was really weird for me. And I just found myself wishing things were different all the time. And on the weekends, I would spend all weekend in bed, just dreading Monday morning, wishing I could just take my daughter and evaporate. I was not actively suicidal, but I was just wishing I would just evaporate. That was kind of, I wish I would just float away into the ether. And I knew that that was not a good place to be and very, very dangerous. So I started to do all of the things that surgeons do is they just fix stuff. I prioritized my sleep. I started eating healthy food. I lost some weight. I started exercising and all that stuff eventually changed jobs thinking maybe it's the environment. We moved to California and all those things really helped like a lot. They helped a lot, but I was still just really struggling. Like that final thing, like things were better, but they weren't great. And that's when I found coaching. So started with some of the things that you and I are very familiar with around coaching and trying to manage my mind and really figuring out that it was my mind. That was the most powerful force. Mm -hmm. I had been abdicating so much power I was outsourcing my power everywhere around me. It was just getting foisted on everything and everyone around me. And once I realized that I could make my own decisions and I could stand by my own decisions and my brain was my biggest asset, I was like, oh, I guess I'm in charge of myself. (laughs) Was this a gradual thing? Very. What what was the thing that started it all? Like, what was the final impetus or or do you even like even remember when that happened? I do. So as you know, we were both starting a coaching practice, Mm -hmm. like kind of in tandem. And I was doing the coaching and I was thinking, I need to back down on my clinical hours so I can ramp up on my coaching hours. I was in private practice and I was trying to figure out how to kind of manage that. And it became clear financially that in private practice in Southern California, there is a threshold after which you don't make money. Mm -hmm. Like you can only dial back your clinical RV expenses to pay very expensive expenses. (laughs) You know, better. I know. (laughs) Yeah. So that's what I was doing is I was super, I was so careful with my time and dialing back and dialing back and dialing back. And, but I was still tethered to this group because of the money. Mm -hmm. And I had taken three days off for my daughter's spring break. And I took her on a trip to San Diego, which was like, it's an hour away from where I live. So it's not this gigantic trip, but it was just this trip. I wanted to spend some time with my kid. And I was worried the entire time about how much money I was losing because I was taking three days Yeah, and it dawned on me how stupid that was. And then we were there and we were having the most wonderful time. Everything went wrong. All the plans I made fell through because I had not realized that a lot of stuff is closed on Thursdays. So we just, it turned into this spontaneous 
we just made everything up on the fly. And we were sitting in this in Balboa Park and the sun is shining. And I remember this moment because you asked about a moment. And so I'm sitting, it's hot. The sun is shining. My daughter is just delighted. And you could see it in her whole body. She's just delighted. And she's like dancing around in the sun. And it just, it was like a switch flipped in my brain. It said, I want to be able to do this anytime I want. Mm -hmm. And that's all it took. Yeah. It was a switch that flipped. So it was a very gradual transition up to that moment. And then it was a switch and we came home from the trip. I told my husband, this is what I want to do. I want to leave the group. I want to be an independent contractor. It's going to be scary and we're not going to have a lot of money for a while, but I have a plan and here's what we do. And then <laughs> everything kind of snowballed from there. And we were was- actually talking about this before we recorded too, about, yeah. you know, it seems like these decisions are kind of sudden but they're not sudden at all. I mean, I think that mm-hmm. if, if you really to figure out what the barriers are, you already know what you want to do. And yeah. sometimes it just takes some sort of event to just decide what that is. And I just had an interview too, talking about when I started the private practice and left the, the golden handcuffs of employment. And mm-hmm. I described that like that, the mental image of my mind was I was tethered and I just clipped it, you know? Yeah. And so I already knew that I wanted to do it, but there was that last foothold of before you make that decision, you already know you want to do. I think that's really the key for me when it comes to coaching. And I think that's why we're aligned in that respect is that most of the time we do know what we want, but something is keeping us from having it and we're going to have it regardless, but we don't necessarily have to suffer to get there. Once we realize that there's probably some barriers that are keeping us from doing what we really want to do. Yes. And there were barriers, barriers, the barriers at the time were, what are my partners going to think of me? What are my patients going to think of me? Mm -hmm. Am I abandoning people? Mm -hmm. Just a lot of like ethical, moral quandaries that I was in. And then I had to ask myself, this is this, this is like, seriously, the thought process I had is like, if I died today, everybody would keep going. Oh yeah. Everybody would keep going. You know, the patients will find a doctor. My partners will have, they'll find somebody else for the group if they want. And everybody's, the world will keep turning. Yes. (laughs) And then I was like, okay, I'm out. (laughs) I've shared this before, but you know, the, the, I learned this on deployment. So like the email stop at two weeks. If you'd like to know what your life expectancy is in your job, it is two weeks. They'll figure it out. Like there'll be pings after that, but like the primary, like people in quote, needing something from you, Mm -hmm. they give up. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. And our residency two years for you to be or essentially forgotten. It's, but it's true. And people need to hear that because we build this thing up in our brains that makes it so scary and so big, like a huge mountain to climb. So what I did was, as I stayed focused on the outcome, and this is how my coaching has changed too. So I was taught to kind of coach around emotions And there isn't anything wrong with that. Like our emotions are really valuable and powerful, but focusing on an outcome and an ideal outcome at that Mm -hmm. gives you a direction. It gives you a vector. Mm -hmm. And if you have a vector, that means you can pretty readily outline actions that are necessary to take to, to get that outcome. And that is all I did. I was like, okay, well, I want to be able to do this anytime I want. So what do I need to do to make that happen? 
Well, first I need a lawyer. I need a lawyer to tell me what my responsibilities are and what my rights are. Okay, get a lawyer, check. Talk to the lawyer. Okay, now the next thing I need to do is I really don't want to burn any bridges with these people that I'm working with because I quite like them and I want to maintain good relationships with them. And you don't have to hate people and hate your situation to leave it. You just leave gracefully. How do I do that? So wrote my documents out. I gave them five months notice, which is plenty of time. I was only required to give one month according to my contract, my partnership contract. So you create your exit strategy and it is really calculated. And I like the word graceful because nobody has to suffer through any of it. So I set a date. I got my own malpractice insurance. I got an S corp, got my bank account, set up independent contractor relationships. And on October 31st of 2022, that was my last day. And Mm -hmm. I walked away. So let's go back to those questions that you were telling yourself or asking yourself initially. So what do your partners think? My partners are delighted. Mm -hmm. My partners are happy for me and they're jealous, I think. Yeah, it's interesting because I think some of the negative feelings that we get are kind of yeah. like that. What do you mean you're leaving? I want to leave too. Why Why do you get to leave? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's the way I engaged with them that I think made it good for everybody. Mm-hmm. And I still have a relationship with them. And as, as I was telling you before you started recording, I mean, I'm still working with them. I was there yesterday. I, I operate a couple times a month. I see patients once a month. That keeps me in the mix. And they are, I think, appreciative of my expertise in the coaching realm because they kind of loop me in on questions that might be more in that nature. And it was mutually beneficial, I think. If you think about it, like our worry about what they say causes us to show up in weird ways. So then they interact with the weird person that we were. But when you decided, like, this is what I'm going to do and this is why, now they're interacting with that best version of you. Correct. I call it the vibe. Like, you know how Pigpen on Peanuts has the dust around him? So his (laughs) vibe is, like, dirty? Mm -hmm. Well, we all have Pigpen dust around us. It's just invisible. And it's that vibe that you bring and that it just seeps through and people react to our, that energy, you know, they react Mm -hmm. to it. So like when you described as weird, that's exactly right. When you're coming to some sort of an engagement, whether it's with a partner or a patient or your husband or your children or whomever, they pick up on that vibe and they react to the vibe. We're very sensory beings. Exactly. And so now you've decided that Oh, actually, we we talked also about patients. You said, what are your patients going to think? So what Mm -hmm. do your patients think? Every single patient has been so happy for me. Yeah. They've been so happy. Mm -hmm. And I've explained what it is I was doing and why I was doing it. Mm -hmm. And they're like, that's so cool. Like Mm -hmm. every single patient was happy for me. Right. And they expressed some, well, I wish you were staying and I I really wish I didn't have to get another doctor. Mm -hmm. It's not like they were happy. They were going to have to 
you know, I still see some of them, but many of my patients, it's just not reasonable to keep seeing, you know, yeah, especially for, you know, uncomplicated things, but everybody was happy for me. Right. And mm-hmm. I think that's the thing, like we're tying ourselves to a particular job or position or whatever, because of what we think people want for us. But if you really ask them, they're like, whatever, you're happy. I'm happy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's right. So you mentioned this was sort of a path. What was your initial step? I mean, what was the first thing that you did? So now you've decided you've put your five month notice in and you've gotten all the things you got your S corp, your own malpractice. And so where did you go about trying to find jobs or did you have an idea or is it just something you said, I'll just figure it out? Yes. <laughs> it was all of that. The first thing I did is I took time off. Mm-hmm. I took time off completely from surgery from October 31st until the start of January. Mm-hmm. I just said to myself, I said, you know what, girl, you get the holiday season. It is your season. You haven't had a holiday season in 20 years and you're going to have a season. And I just let myself have it. And I'm so happy that I did because I just, I shut, it's like I shut the door on a messy closet. Mm-hmm. And I just gave myself space to enjoy the time and not worry about anything. It was like, I programmed that time in. Mm-hmm. And then that was a, it was a very useful time because my body just kind of recovered, you mm-hmm. know, my body, I got rest consistently. I was just, it was, it's a, it was a period of recovery. That's, that's the best way I can say. I was going to ask, like, you know, when you have this anticipated time that you're going to have off, what are some of the first things you did? You mentioned you were taking care of yourself, but what are some of the things that you did that you wouldn't have done if, had you been working? I binged a lot of TV, like on purpose. Anything good? I like spy stuff. So I get into the spy dramas and I binged, I just binge TV, but I did it on purpose. It wasn't like an indulgent binge. It was all planned. Yeah. It was planned. I did, I had a, like a really thoughtful Christmas season where I was like thinking about what I was going to do for the meals. And I was thinking about what I was going to purchase for people and how, you know, it was just kind of a thoughtful holiday season. Mm-hmm. Uh, what else did I do? I don't, I, I don't know. I, I think I just lived without burden. I just lived a life. I enjoyed, I went to my daughter's school and participated in stuff at her school. I'd never done that before. Mm-hmm. and took her to school every day. I made her lunch every day. I picked her up every day, mm-hmm. did things with her after school. It was just, I just lived yeah. in, in my family. I can't, I don't think I can be more specific than that. Well, I think it's helpful to ask yourself the question, what would I do with time off? And mm-hmm. I, each month I choose something for myself personally. And it was, was it last month or the month before I had fake retirement. So I said, you know, what, what am I telling myself I'm waiting for retirement to do? And so then mm-hmm. I just decided to do it because once you get clarity on what you're waiting for, you start yeah. to realize I could actually do that right now. So like when I was driving and the guy, neighbor down the street was walking and I was like, when I retire, I'm going to walk every day. And I was like, mm-hmm. I probably walk every day today. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And that's the stuff that I did. I would just... I did. I walked in my neighborhood. I listened to podcasts. I read books. I just, yeah. it was just, I kind of did whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted. It was just also like, it was 
intentional in that it was a period of time that I've just gave myself, but it also was not exactly, I didn't exactly have a schedule. Yes. So had you had jobs lined up already? So in this gap of time, or did you say, I'm going to take the holiday season, then figure it out? Yeah. So the, the original plan was, is that I was going to build up my coaching practice. Mm -hmm. That was the original plan. It's like, I really want to give this a good run. I want to coach my face off and just try to build something really, really epic for Mm -hmm. women surgeons and surgeons, Mm -hmm. because I want to build something epic for patients. That's my, my ultimate mission in all of this is how to make this whole thing, the whole gig of surgery better for everybody. Right. Patients are at the top of the pyramid and then surgeons and our teams and the world right? Like how do we make all of this better for everybody? That's the ultimate mission. So I was like, I'm going to get in there and get this coaching program, blah, 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 blah. But here's the funny thing that happens when you are in a job that you're resisting it, the job becomes the villain. Yeah. And, and we take suddenly, that hustle and, and the hustle and everything else that in our current job with our next one, unless we figure it out. Yeah. And then suddenly you remove that and you don't resist your job anymore. Mm-hmm. And suddenly you're like, oh my gosh, I really love surgery. Mm-hmm. I really love operating. I'm really good at this. Ooh, I wonder if there's a way I can do this that works for me. I wonder if there's a way that I can trim away all the stuff that I really didn't like about it and just keep the stuff that I love. And then I thought to myself, Yes, 100%, because all of the rules that we've been fed about how to do the job are completely made up, as you know, mm-hmm. and we have freedom to try to figure things out. And if it doesn't exist, just make it. It does seem like the future of surgery and medicine may be free agency. If it's maybe. not unions, maybe it's free agency. Heck yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And agency is actually a really good word for my entire story. Cause that's what I did is I just made agency for myself in my own life. So, so I was doing some work with my group and when I was doing it without the burden of like trying to make the bottom line and trying to make my overhead and just all of the sort of hustle and grind that went with being in private practice, I just enjoyed it so much. And I, was then unwilling to give it up completely. Mm -hmm. So I started looking into locums and there's something about locums. I did a lot of research on it and there's something about it. That's not attractive to me. Namely, as you don't get paid enough money, there's also something that's kind of been birthed out of this for me, which I think you could probably speak to better than most is this under earning that happens Mm -hmm. with surgeons, but women surgeons in particular, And every time we show up to work for something that we're not going to be compensated fairly for, it's a vote to keep that system going. Right. And I just thought if I don't have to, I'm not going to, I started some per diem work. And then ultimately what I ended up settling on was a surgicalist position with the synergy group. I think they changed their name and I forget what they're called now, but, and that has been amazing. And what's super funny about it is my mentor, his name's Tracy Watson. He's an orthopedic traumatologist. Right. As I was finishing up 
I was about to get out of the air force and I'd been working on the trauma team at my hospital for three years. And I was me, I was just talking to him one day and he said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I really just want to take care of fractures. I want to take care of adults and kids fractures. And he said, well, you don't really need to do a, a trauma fellowship because you've been working here for three years. So why don't you do a peds fellowship? And that way you'll, you'll be well-rounded and be able to do that. And I said, okay. I mean, I thought that made sense. And that's why I ended up doing a peds fellowship and the path took me into like this buttonhole of only peds. But then what I'm doing now is actually adult and pediatric fracture work. So it's been 10 years since that conversation, but it's funny how like it, it's like the way I described it to my husband, actually, when we were driving home from the airport the other day is I said, honey, I feel like this is a keyhole and I'm the key that fits in this hole. Yeah. This little thing that I've gotten into mm-hmm. and that alignment I, I wish for every surgeon to feel that alignment in their work. Yeah. And so what do you think is holding them back from that alignment? <laughs> well, missing skills more than anything, because just like we were talking about before record, surgeons are extremely capable human beings. I would argue that surgeons are probably the most capable human beings on the planet because of the the dexterity that they have to, the skills that they learn to execute under high stress. Who can do that? I mean, like reproducibly, who can do that? Mm -hmm. It's like Michael Jordan or I'm trying to think of some other, some other industry where people have to function like that regularly. Yeah. So we're highly capable people, but I think we get stuck. We get stuck in sort of our autopilot. <clears throat> Auto, I've, I've taken, I've taken the term survival mode and kind of like swapped autopilot out because that's what it's like. Like, yes, it's survival. We're in, we're in survival mode, so to speak, but it's more of like an autopilot. It's like, yeah. We're living our lives unintentionally. And yeah. I think people are afraid. Yes, exactly. So people, I th- I think, are afraid primarily what other people think. Mm-hmm. They're, I think they might be afraid they're going to let people down, I just like I was. And I think mm-hmm. people have women in particular. I don't know about men, but I think this is a thing where women have a hard time trying to articulate what it is they really want Mm -hmm. and whether it's true or not might experience some judgment about what it is they really want. Oh yeah. And the funny thing is though, is that if we all have something to bring to the world to make the world a better place, your desires are directly correlated to that thing. Mm -hmm. So we should all be doing what we want. And yours is a great example of that. When we are so worried about all these things that are holding us back, that we actually, in fact, hold ourselves back. We do. 100%. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I don't know. Does that answer your question? Yeah, definitely. And this goes in that book that we were talking about before we started recording that Cassie Arbaniak's Woman's Guide to Power Unbound, where Mm -hmm. 
it's, you know, women especially are conditioned to ask in certain ways and Mm -hmm. to not really understand what our desires are. And this is all based on just conditioning that we've, that's been offered to us and we haven't thought to question it. So mm-hmm. when you think to question it, then you start realizing it's it's worth questioning. And we can start to unravel a lot of the default, which is just societal stuff. I know a lot of people talk about the patriarchy, and I think men suffer just as much from the patriarchy. But it's basically just the culture norms that have been offered, you know, generation to generation that we now just know that we have the ability to question and to, yeah. to understand why we're getting what we're getting. Yes. And that questioning, I call it inquiry is a skill. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the things that if, if people develop the skill of inquiry, mm-hmm. then they're one step closer to this other place, mm-hmm. which is going to be a highly desirable place. Yeah. Which will be it, The funny thing is, is that it doesn't only benefit the person It benefits everybody. And I can speak to this too, because me doing all of this stuff to make the life that I want makes my daughter's life infinitely better. And it makes my husband's life infinitely better. And the way that we're kind of operating as a family or a household is completely different than Mm -hmm. the way we were operating before. And I can explain this a little bit differently. I had a lot of resentment about the house because there's this secret transaction, I think, or like a secret, we don't talk about it, but it's like, if we go to work and our spouse doesn't, and then the spouse, if, if, if it's a male could potentially be impacted by his own conditioning around earning. Mm -hmm. And then the woman who's a high earner Mm -hmm. comes home And finds herself doing all the things in the home as well. The second shift. It's the second shift. Mm -hmm. But it's that vibe that you were talking about, that we were talking about earlier, that serves to increase the divide between the two heads of the household. It, It doesn't help. It serves to cement the woman's role in the second shift. And it, and it, I hope I'm saying this well. Cause this is my experience. It just drives the man further and further into just the vortex. Let me just mm-hmm. say it like that. But what I have noticed is, is the, the more agency I exert in my own life, I'm showing up differently in my own home. For example, I just leave, I go away. I work away for one whole week a month. I leave and the house doesn't burn down. My kid gets fed every day. All the animals are cared for. Mm -hmm. They survive. They thrive. In fact, it was hard at first and it's getting easier every time. What they're figuring out is their lives are better when they are participating at a higher level as well. It's not better for the woman to do everything on the second shift is what I'm trying to say. Right. Completely agree. I think the point was, is that when you when you sort of curate your life in an intentional way and you're doing what you really want and not doing what you don't want, it's not just good for you. It's good for everybody around you. And ultimately it's good for the whole world because you're showing up as that like highest, most aligned version of yourself. 
Yeah. And that's why I was so interested in talking with you because I know the things that hold us back and I've seen your thought process along the way and how Mm -hmm. you got to where you're at right now and the questions that you offered yourself. And I think that's the benefit of being a coach throughout that, that you can kind of observe your mind as you go along and see like, oh, I didn't know this was holding me back. And now I see that it actually really wasn't. And Mm -hmm. now this is, I can see the result of what I want and I can actually determine the result that I want to get to go to those that areas. And, you know, watching that story unfold, I know there's going to be someone there that that's earlier on in a similar story and saying, but I, I can't leave or, or I have to do this or what will everybody think? And watching someone's story unfold and realize that like the house doesn't burn down and all these things is really where I think the sharing the stories are. And I think that's where most of the podcast episodes that resonate the most with people are the ones that reflect where they are in life and where they want to be. And they just don't know how to yet. Mm -hmm. And it goes back, circling back to the thought that we really do know what we want. And so that's when someone look, look and say like, you know, I want to identify my path to power, which is what we're talking about. And so by you demonstrating your path to power, it's going to be so much more impactful for the people. And I think by sharing these stories is how we exponentially improve the world is showing people how that is possible. I completely agree. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So what does life look like for now? I know that you mentioned, obviously you're still a coach and I'm sure you're still doing that. So mm-hmm. tell us where people can find you and tell us who you're right for. Oh, that's a great question. People can find me at my email. I have two emails. One is jess.mcmichael at gmail.com. So J-E-S-S dot M-C-M-I-C-H-A-E-L at gmail.com. The other one is the clean blue towel. So you can go to my website called the clean blue towel or find me at jessica at the clean blue towel.com. This is actually a really cool story. Tell them about the clean blue towel. Cause you've told me this story about why you picked that. And I think it's a really, really good one. So this happened yesterday in the OR, as a matter of fact, I have this infatuation with the blue towels in the operating room and I love, so orthopedics is messy, very, very messy. And I operate on a lot of lower extremities, but the same is true for upper extremities. You go through the case, everything's a hot mess and you're kind of like, winding things down, closing, getting the leg, the limb cleaned up and you basically put down fresh drapes. And for us, it's usually clean blue towels. So you lift the leg up and say clean blue towel and the tech offers you towels to put down. And it's just the most, it's like taking an exhale. Your work is done. It's it's so for me emblematic of the end of the the end of the job it's the completion of the project and that's i love it i i love it every single time i ask for a clean blue towel in the or and we all do it we all know what it is and what what they're for so they clean up messes and i love that so yeah. That's why I named my company the Clean Blue Towel. Because <laughs> so I think, especially as surgeons, you relate to that too. I mean, it's kind of yeah. like it's it's the fresh start. It's is yeah. as it should be. It's 
all the things. And it signals uh, the completion of it too. So there's a lot of meaning to that. So I wanted to not, not lose that point too. I now, I know you that. also have a Facebook group for women surgeons. You want to tell people about that? Oh yeah. So it's called Common Thread and anybody can come on to Common Thread if you're a woman or somebody who identifies as a woman. But here's the recommendation. Please, please, please answer the questions. There are some questions. So people will request access to the group, but if you don't answer the questions, we won't let you in. So it's called the Common Thread Women Surgeon Coaching by Room One. The Common Thread Women Surgeon Coaching by Room One. That's a free Facebook group. There's also a coaching membership there too. So you can get all the information by going to that page. Yes. And those answers, you know, keep community safe. So, I mean, having my own group too, it's the the person who's in like, I just one that was in like hundreds of groups and things like that too. I mean, clearly that is some sort of person, but I know it's hard to keep these areas safe online. So it makes perfect it sense. Is. Yeah. And then there was another part to that question you asked. Oh, who was right for you? Who was right for me? Oh, okay. Anybody who has a brain, Number one, (laughs) willing to explore it, willing to explore it. I work a lot with residents Mm -hmm. and I like to work with women surgeons who are having, who are struggling, really struggling to figure out what they want. Mm -hmm. So what we do is we examine your life and then try to figure it out. So, so we can hold up in front of you what you want. And then we create a path to get there. And honestly, what coaches do, like in the most basic sense is coaches help people win. So anybody who's ever watched a football game knows what the coach is doing. It's obvious. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what sets coaching apart from therapy and all the other types of mental health things that are out there is I don't consider myself a mental health professional. I consider myself a no kidding person who wants you to win your game of life. Like we're all playing the game and coaches help them help people play the game better. Mm -hmm. So anybody who wants to do that, (laughs) you come to me. There you go. All right. So I'll put the the links in in your your email, if that's okay. I'll put your website on there so people can reach you. Great. All right. Well, thanks just for coming by. So good to see you again. So good to see you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Amy. For more information on the Boss Business of Surgery series, go to bosssurgery.com.